1: With Capella University's FlexPath Learning Format, you can earn your degree online at your own pace and get support from people who care about your success. Imagine your future differently at capella.edu. Today's show is brought to you by us, the Choose Yourself Network. One of the most common questions covered on that podcast and by our guests is about self-publishing. James has written a lot on the topic and sold hundreds of thousands of books by leaving the traditional publishers behind. It takes a little guts to take on that risk, but James has narrowed all of the secrets of self-publishing your own bestseller into a single checklist. You can get it at www.jamesaltature.com bestseller. If you're thinking about writing or just want to publish your own ideas, it's a must read. Check it out today at jamesaltucher.com slash bestsellers and download your free guide. That's jamesaltucher.com backslash bestseller, B-E-S-T-S-E-L-L-E-R. Thanks for listening. And now here's today's show. This isn't your average business podcast and he's not your average host. This is the James Altucher Show on the Stansbury Radio Network. Hey, so I got Tom Rath on the phone. Tom, how's it going? Good. How are you doing today? Good. Tom, first off, I'm blown away. You've sold 5 million copies of your books. Yeah, quite a few readers over the years. It adds up over time. And your latest one is Are You Fully Charged?, which I, I think is just excellent. And And we were talking really briefly before the podcast. I said I was, for me, almost surprised how inspirational it was. Like I was afraid it was going to be kind of a bland business advice book, but you're a great storyteller. The advice is great. Uh, I feel it overlaps a lot with with stuff I've said on my podcast before. And uh, I also thought, uh, unlike me, you actually had the statistics to really back up many of the things you say.
0: Yeah, you know, it's interesting. There's a lot of great research out there that just kind of needs to come to the surface in a way that people can apply it. And I'm I, like you, I think I read a lot of books out there, especially in the business field. And even though I've written several books and read so many books, it's still hard for me to just make sense out of all that and figure out what are practical things I can do in my day-to-day life. So when I was working on Are You Fully Charged, I really sat down and said, what are the things that we can all try and keep in mind on a day-to-day basis that... Might help us to do something that makes a difference for another person or picks us up a little bit throughout the day, in particular.
1: And this is, I mean, just just to go over, like you've also written StrengthsFinder 2.0, which I mean, the last time I checked, StrengthsFinder 2.0 was number one on the Wall Street Journal bestseller list, even though it's been two years since it's been written. And Are You Fully Charged was also on the bestseller list, and you've written, you know, books on on well being. I don't know. You've, you've written, like, how many books all together?
0: Um, I've done this. I think this is the seventh book kind of in the business and well-being genre. And then we've also done a couple of kids' books on Around How Full Is Your Bucket and most recently a kids' version of Eat,
1: Move, Sleep. Yeah, I enjoyed the uh, Eat, Move, Sleep book as well. So uh, I have a bunch of questions because I'm I'm always interested in – topics of mastery and you know a lot of people write to me and i'm sure you get the same types of emails you know how do i find my passion in life or how do i find more happiness at work and you know i'm also interested in just uh how do people find Meaning when they're bogged down by so many kind of responsibilities and stresses and, and pressures in their life. But first, I want to ask you, like every, every superhero has their, their secret origin story. And, you know, this is where I think your, your storytelling kicked in and kind of gave meaning, you know, wrapped around your book. But you have a pretty intense story. Like, uh, can you tell us a little bit, if you don't mind about, kind of when you, you know, you, you also have dealing with issues with cancer and health issues. And can you tell us a little about that? Yeah, the, the kind of short version of the story is that when I was, I'm
0: a, I'm 39 now. And when I was uh, 16 years old, I uh, was outside playing basketball and realized I had real vision problems on my left side. And that turned out to be several large tumors growing on my left eye. And by the time I was 17, I'd lost all vision in my, uh, on my left side and my left eye permanently. And doctors said, well, that's not the worst of the news. And they told me it was likely that I had a very rare genetic mutation that essentially it just shuts off the body's most powerful tumor suppressor gene. And so as a product of that, they told me that there was more than a 50% chance that I would have cancer in my kidneys and my pancreas and my spine and brain oh my and God. adrenal glands, all these areas over the next 10, 20 years, however long I might live. And so, you know, as as the doctors predicted, and I mean, this was in the early days of genetic testing, but it was still really accurate. Um, I currently do have an embattling cancer in my pancreas and in my kidneys and my spine and a few other areas. And I go in every, I, I'll go in again in two weeks, I go in every July um, and spend a whole week just, I call it tubing and MRIs and CT scanners, doing all these scans and blood tests and everything else. and If all goes well each year, I kind of walk out of there with a a New Year's lease on life, essentially. So what's been interesting to me, looking at that whole experience over 20, 25 years now in hindsight, is that even at a really young age, it got me hyper-focused on all the things I could learn to be proactive and stay ahead of that condition. That was one thing. Another thing it did was it got me really focused as I came out of college on what are all the things that I can do to make a difference for other people yet today – and kind of treating each day like, you know, you've got to do something that leaves
1: a little bit of a lasting impact uh, when you're gone.
0: And so that's, that's where my research is focused. Really.
1: I really respect that and, uh, and appreciate that. And it sounds like the illness kind of, even though, you know, albeit it's horrible and I'm really sorry that you're going through all of this. It sounded like it also kickstarted meaning, you know, and the quest for meaning in your life. But when you first found out, I'm sure like, were you, obviously you were depressed, but like, were you scared? Were you horrified? Were you thinking, how, how, how am I going to ask a girl to prom next year? if I lose vision in my eye. Like what was going through your head?
0: Well, it's funny you said I asked a girl to prom because that was actually my primary concern was how are others going to perceive this? And is this going to freak out my girlfriend at the time? And will I? And so that, so at first I started thinking about more practical things like that. And then, Eventually, my I suppose my thinking went to, you know, will I ever get married and have kids and kind of, is, is it possible to have a normal course of a life there? And so I did ask those questions and I was scared, especially right away. But the thing that was kind of interesting to me, and this was what led to the work that we did on the very first book, I worked on How Full Your Bucket with my grandfather. Um, we co-wrote that book together. And what was most remarkable kind of looking at it that I think we wrote that book when I was about 26 is that because I'd had a family that was so supportive and they'd essentially done so much good work of kind of building up my self-confidence and having good relationships before that diagnosis and before anything happened that it actually kind of created a reserve where even the news over that first month and first year was honestly nowhere near as bad as someone might have expected at all and I kind of kept going I kept playing basketball I kept doing all the wild things a teenager would and, uh, kept my girlfriend, all the, everything continued to kind of go on a normal course there at that time, despite some of my in, initial fears.
1: And now, um, I don't know, do you have family kids? Yeah. I've got a wife and a six year old daughter and a four year old son. Oh, great. Congratulations.
0: So everything, everything's gone really well over those years, which has been kind of neat to step back and think about now that things have gone relatively well from a health standpoint.
1: Well, this segues into uh, one of my first questions on, on your book, Are You Fully Charged? But you talk a lot about meaning and how people whose uh, primary interest during the day is to um, pr- have meaning in their life and, and help others or provide, you know, have this what you call intrinsic motivation. People who have that far outweigh in whether it's financial success or well being or whatever, people who have just extrinsic motivation, like money. But given the events in the economy of the last few years, I get a lot of emails from people who are just simply scared that they're not going to be able to pay their bills. And how do you kind of how do you take someone who's so anxious and so scared and say, listen, don't focus so much on paying next month's rent. Focus on how you can help others today or how focus on how you can find meaning in your life. How do you balance the two?
0: You know, it really is a balancing act and an important one. I think um, from all the work that I've read and uh, studies I've conducted, money matters a lot for the sake of giving you enough security to know that you will be able to put a roof over your head and you will be able to afford food and so forth and those basic needs. So to that degree, just doing something that pays the bills and helps you to get by can be very very important at times. But what surprised me most is we get into – a lot of new research in the last five years about momentary and daily well-being because we can measure people so much more frequently and effectively is that most, almost all of the gains in well-being associated with daily, daily well-being, I should say, associated with income occur before about $40,000 of household, total household income in the United States on average. And after that point, you see little gains in, uh, positive affect or happiness up to $75,000, and then it completely disappears. But you don't see much difference in stress even after the $40,000 point. So there are a lot of people uh, in the US in particular who do have enough to make ends meet and to provide shelter and food and water and things like that. But then after that point, they're spending far too much of their discretionary resources on stuff instead of experiences and time with people. And they're also they continue to chase more and more income as if each doubling in income is going to buy them another doubling in happiness when at most it might buy them a few percentage points increase in happiness. It really won't double your happiness overall.
1: Well, I like that. There's one point in the book where you say um, people who have zero extrinsic motivation and only intrinsic motivation end up overall making more money than the people who have even slight extrinsic motivation.
0: Yeah, that was one of the uh, most fascinating pieces of research I've seen in a long time from uh, Amy wasweski and Barry Schwartz did a study at West Point and followed cadets over 10, 15 year time period. And I would have thought that, you know, yes, there's a lot of work out there. People have said having intrinsic motivators is better than extrinsic. So, but what was fascinating is that having, having any extrinsic at all actually degraded the real value of the intrinsic motivation. So it's better to just have kind of internal motivators instead of allowing the uh, allure of a doubling or tripling of salary or what people think externally to shape what you do so much. I, that's one of the things I've seen in a lot of the uh, pieces that you've published and written about over the last years where if you can really take time to focus on the things that are the most meaningful you for you instead of spending – 99% of your day just kind of responding to external demands and stimuli. That's, that meaning really is created on a day to day basis and it requires some focus on the things that do matter. Meaning, the other thing that I learned about meaning in working on this book is that, you know, it sounded like such a grand word at first, like purpose or mission, but really the meaningful work that makes a difference isn't something that descends from the heavens on a sunny day or happens when you're diagnosed with cancer. It's something that you do at two o'clock this afternoon that picks up another person, essentially.
1: Yeah. You mentioned actually at one point, better than having like one big meaning or goal, like I'm going to cure the world of poverty. You know, if you kind of celebrate meaning, you know, even small little things throughout the day, that has a much more positive effect on your, on your well being. Like what's, what's an example of that?
0: Yeah. An example of that is, you know, there's something about, not only do we have to do work that we sometimes perceive as meaningful, but we've got to find ways to connect the dots with being able to see that what we do hour by hour creates meaning for another person. So something as simple as if your job is to prepare food in a restaurant, if you can see the people who are consuming the food and eating the food and benefiting from your work, you make better food, it's more nutritious, and people are more satisfied with their experience. And you see things like this in call centers where When people dialing out to request funds for scholarships, uh, have a scholarship recipient come in and talk to them, or they receive a letter from an actual scholarship recipient, they raise more money and they do better work. And, you know, it's something even as serious as you take radiologists who are reading scans of people who might have cancer all day, and you'd think they could connect what they're doing with meaning. But when researchers simply put a photo of a patient and append it to the record, it drastically improves their diagnostic accuracy by about 46 percent. So we've got to find ways to do that throughout the day.
1: It's really fascinating because ultimately we're we're from two million years ago, we're tribal mammals. So if someone's just sitting in a room looking at these weird radiology x-rays as opposed to connecting it to another uh, mammal in the tribe, it it makes sense that that would give them a lot more um, kind of motivation to do a good job yeah it's you know it's it's too bad i when I study when I look at this just sort a of broad perspective, we've
0: essentially kind of engineered and sterilized so much of the work that we do in a business context that we try and extract the emotions in order to systematize it so there's no error and we we've kind of got to bring that back into the work that we do.
1: well, you talk about how that essentially began in the industrial revolution, where literally. We became, you know, the average worker, uh, became cogs in a machine and we were just expected to do the same thing all day long every day. And, and gradually what we've been seeing in this ongoing revolution is that as technology develops, it replaces the, the cogs in the machine and it kind of forces us even more. I think we're kind of at a critical time where people really do have to. Focus on finding additional meaning in their lives or else they're going to be stuck. They're going to be replaced by technology.
0: Right. That's where I think that you're there. There is kind of a moment coming together here where people entering the workforce today, they do want to do something that adds a positive benefit to society. Frankly, they don't want to work for a tobacco company today. And so. That's where there's th- that dynamics coming forward. But then you have organizations who are starting to automate things. And so, I mean, one of two things can happen. And I sh- both will to a degree, but it should change the workforce pretty profoundly over the next 25 years. Um One is that organizations will realize that they need to also show people that their lives are better because they're a part of that organization instead of just the organization extracting as much as they can from the person between nine and five. So some organizations will be able to do that, and I've started to see it. It will give them a competitive advantage as employers, and people will see that their lives are better because they're a part of that company. The other end of the continuum is when organizations fail to do that, we'll just have more and more people who are uh, working as free agents and contract workers because the relationship between them and an organization has not been able to work.
1: I I think ultimately that is what's going to happen. I think kind of over overlapping with capitalism the past hundred or two hundred years has been what I call corporatism, where we kind of misassociate uh, capitalism with working for the big corporation when that's getting disconnected. And I'm gonna I'm gonna get to that in a in a little bit. But I want to talk first about you know again this you know meaning versus. Kind of that need for for job safety and job security uh, that people mistakenly think they need, and I look at my daughter, so I have a sixteen year old and a thirteen year old and they kind of are trained by uh you know whether it's society or their friends or guidance counselors or whatever to think that what they've got to focus on are job skills first and and they don't even address meaning in in school so how how would you teach your kids? that meaning is important? Well, you know, at a a basic level with pretty young kids now, I've I've taken an
0: approach, and my my, my wife does an even better job of it, of kind of orienting their days and their efforts about what did they do to help another student at school or help a friend on the playground. And it's kind of that, I think, other orientation versus um, self and kind of uh, achievement and financial motivation that starts to work its way in there pretty quickly that we've tried to buffer around to any degree where it's i think there probably needs to be more conversation in uh, high schools and i've I've started to see this in colleges in pockets where there's a much deeper focus on how can you do things that really make a difference and have that external contribution and um, how can you essentially build your life around your natural talents and who you are and how you can make the greatest difference over time, whether that's for a family, for a organization or for a community or for the broader world in some cases.
1: You know, part, part of what you said earlier though, reminds me of, it's not that easy. Like it's almost like a mindfulness practice. Like when you were talking about the food service workers, I could imagine some food service worker listening to this and saying, you know, my customers are disgusting they treat me rudely they don't tip they talk back to me you know it becomes a practice to sort of switch that inner dialogue to say oh i'm getting to feed people and you know other you know other things that are helpful in the world like you kind of have to sort of reverse that internal conversation that we have all day long it's probably the hardest thing to do and that's
0: that's the whole second chunk of this new book is about those little tiny interactions that we have about in, we have uh, something like 19,000 moments in a day, and anytime you have an interaction with another person, you need at least 80% of those to be a lot more positive than negative, just because one bad interaction, if you're working in a restaurant with a customer, that essentially it counteracts four or five good moments with other customers. It's kind of, it's similar to how uh, sitting down for whatever an hour counteracts a lot of time of exercise as well, where we've got to think about that little balance on an hour-by-hour basis throughout the day, because when you go back and look at people's well-being uh, in the moment, it's largely a product of our ability to either turn those interactions in a more positive direction, or at least prevent something from spiraling out of control in a negative direction, which happens several times throughout the day as well.
1: You know, you know, th- this balance equation that you talk or or the balance that you talk about moment by moment or hour by hour, I sort of see this as underlying in the book as kind of the the secret technique of the book. Like several times you refer to like okay, like in, in any given moment, we have lots of things happening to us and some of them are negative and some of them are positive. And you basically suggest or kind of intimate that um get yourself into situations where the positive outweighs the negative. So yes, you might not like some aspects of your job, but can you find ways to have um, the positive outweigh the negative by improving your relationships with colleagues or even on food when you talk about food like, OK, I have a plate of food in front of me. Some of it's good for me. Some of it's bad for me, but try to make it net net more good for me than bad for me. And you, it's a very balanced way of looking at all these different things as opposed to being strict like, no, only eat kale. <laughs>
0: Right. Yeah, I've, I've seen so, I mean, diet's a great example where, you know, there's, there's, I mean, there's so many opinions on that. I, right. It was, it was interesting for me as a business writer to write a book, Eat, Move, Sleep, that was all about health because I, I mean, you think people have their own opinions in distinct ways on business topics with health. It's everyone has their own diet. Um, but what i learned in that process is there are some real commonalities where i mean nobody's telling you you need to go inhale more sugar today and nobody's telling you you need fewer green vegetables and nobody's telling you that you should add a lot of fried foods to your diet tomorrow and so if you just look using the common sense things and say okay can i make this meal overall more of a net positive instead of a net negative it's it's kind of a good way to go through and think about things that end up with the total of a day where you did more good things than bad things for your health and you know, like you mentioned, interactions play out in that same manner where, you know, even if some, I, I see this all the time. I talk about this in the book where because I'm I'm blind in my uh, left eye, but I have a really good prosthetic, so people don't know. And so when I'm in coffee shops or tight quarters, I bump into people all the time. And I just, I know it's going to happen when I'm in a crowded area because I can't see past my nose. And it's, I've learned over the years that Uh, I've kind of got my script down, which is a real positive, apologetic response. But what's fascinating to me is to watch other people who are going through days with such variability. And I mean, maybe uh, 20 percent of the time, someone will be real angry and real hostile and real upset about it. And what I can see through this lens is that I always I even when that occurs, I get the opportunity to continue to be more apologetic and try to turn that person around. And the last thing I would ever want to do is to raise the ante of hostility and make things even worse for someone who might be having a really rough day for a lot of reasons that aren't connected to me at all. So that kind of, that helps me to see it in the moment.
1: You know, not, not to make light of it, but have you ever considered an eye patch? Cause that might be kind of cool actually. <laughs>
0: it, yeah, I have considered that and it would be, it would be kind of cool. It would also be a nice disclaimer in some of those settings.
1: Yeah, exactly. People will say, Oh, my God, this guy, I, right. they'll feel bad, make them feel bad. There you go. Um, so I'm really interested in the question of of mastery and, and, and the role talent plays in it. And it's funny, I read your book uh, StrengthsFinder 2.0 side by side while I was reading the book uh, Bounce by Matthew Syed. Have you ever read that book? No, I haven't yet. Okay, so he was like a champion um, ping pong player in the UK, and he kind of determined that it was just luck. Like it just happened to be that on his street uh, there was a great coach. There were other great ping pong players, and it put him in a school district where there was an emphasis on ping pong. And if he um, lived one block over, he wouldn't have been – in that school district. And so consequently, he was able to put in the 10,000 hours because there was this emphasis and he became a world-class table tennis player. And you, uh, it's almost contradiction to what you say, um, where you say, okay, you, know, you have a direct quote, there is something you can do better than anyone else in the world, implying I, James Altucher, have some strength that I should focus on that I, that that will be better than anybody else in the world. That is my talent. That I can be the the best at. Uh, where 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 do you fall on this? You know, despite this quote.
0: You know, it's it's. I'm I'm glad you asked that question because it's been fun for me to watch some of this conversation, uh, just at a distance. Because I'm a, I'm a researcher by heart, and I try to be pretty objective about this stuff. And I think anyone who tells you that it's just all about talent and talents, the main and only factor in the game is probably full of it. Um, and I'd say the same about anyone who goes to an extreme and says that ten thousand or twenty thousand even twenty thousand hours of practice because can't really make anyone great at anything at an extreme. Um, Right. And then and then there's a lot I mean there's a lot of work out there on luck too. And I, I think luck plays a very important role for a lot of us as we meet people by chance and stumble into things. And uh, but by no means is luck without any effort or without any talent going to take you anywhere you want to go. So it, I I personally, I think it's a kind of a triangulation of those three things and um, maybe honing some skills with practice in the middle of it, too, that really makes a difference. And what I what I have learned from a talent standpoint is that people are likely born or by young age, at least express pretty distinct natural talents for different things. I see it right now already with kids that are four and six, where you can see some pretty clear unique talents there that aren't just the same and common across my two kids. And the key is how can you invest more time in the areas where you already have some talent, primarily because you just grow faster in those areas. And of course, if you have weaknesses that are causing you a lot of problems, you need to focus on and think about that as well. But, you know, to me, a lot of the, the stuff that I've studied around strength comes back to a, a kind of a basic math equation where the one thing I've learned from studying people who really did a lot of great things, leadership, individual achievers, whatever it might be, is they did realize that if they spent their entire life just trying to be a little bit good at everything, they wouldn't have
1: time to be great at anything in life. And so that's, that's kind of the crux of that. A lot of times successful people are a little bit good at several things, but then they're the best in the world at the intersection of those little things
0: right i've yeah i I've absolutely seen that, and I think that the but those intersections are still pretty unique and narrow bands of how you do something that makes a difference for people and the When I talk about the talent, it's more about um if if you've got a team of people at the top of an organization or any type of group and um one person who's the formal leader feels like he needs to be the best at everything and the best at uh, operational stuff the best at building relationships the best at having a vision and the best at selling things let's say it, there's there's really no room for error for a lot of growth around that if he doesn't bring people on his team who can be even better at certain things than he ever could be. Do you see what I mean? So there's on, on a team, you absolutely need a rounded distribution of talents around it. But if you've got one person who's just focused on being a Jack of all trades and thinking that they can be the expert on everything,
1: I think that's just a recipe for dilution. In fact, you even say, um, you suggest that if you focus on your strengths and improving your strengths, and this is a quote from you, you can double your number of high-quality work hours per week from 20 to 40. Um, so does this kind of mean if I focus on my strengths and I want to be also world-class at my strengths, um, does that kind of – And again, I'm going to try to apply this to the 10,000-hour rule. Does that cut down my 10,000 hours to potentially 5,000? Like, will I be faster at getting world-class if I focus on my strengths?
0: Yes. You know, that that might be the first – I've never heard someone put it like that, but it might be the best summary I've heard in terms of you would – you might only need 5,000 hours if you start with some natural talent in that area. That's a really good way to think about it because that's, that's exactly what we found in detailed studies across several countries and many, many companies in the work that we did at Gallup is that basically, if you're in a job where you don't get to use your talents at at all on an average day, you kind of burn out and you can work 20 hours and get as much done as most people. But after 20 hours, you're kind of wiped out and most of your good efforts gone. If you are able to use your strengths on a daily basis, even a little bit of the time, uh, you can get to 40 hours. Maybe on some weeks you get up to 60 with the wow. same amount of productivity as you had in the first 10 or 20. But after, it's important also that even if, to your point about kind of balancing things out with focusing our time, even if you're really in a job where you're engaged and you're using your strengths every day, after 60 hours, those hours really don't count for anywhere near as much.
1: So, you know, it's interesting because um, I get emails every day and I'm, I'm guessing you probably do as well. Uh, and the emails are always of the forum. And I should just add, I have a lot of compassion for these emails, but the emails are always of the forum. I'm 18 years old. I'm 25. I'm 30. I'm 50. I'm 60. And I'm not good at anything. I never found my passion. I never found my purpose in life. um I never found anything that I'm good at, you know other than referring people to your strengths finder program, what's like one or two pieces of like, how should I respond to these people? How do you respond to these people?
0: Yeah. You know, it's, I think it's very common and something that we've all got to work on where I, I didn't, I thought I had absolutely no talent for writing or telling stories at all. Um, when I was 25, 26 years old and I just, I really hadn't tried much and nobody would called it out at all. And then um, my my grandfather was he'd been diagnosed with stage four gastroesophageal cancer and knew he didn't have much time left and he and so I wrote him a long letter about what an influence he'd had on my life and after he read it he said you know you've got some talent for telling stories will you help me to write a book in the next two months because he didn't think he had much time left and that's how I got into the this space of writing and we wrote how full is your bucket together before he passed away a great experience but um it, it, no one had ever. Pointed out that I had any talent in that area and encouraged me to spend more time on it. And because he did that, I kind of spotted something relatively late in life for someone who'd kind of been around all the different personality tests and all had good mentors and encouragement and everything else. I'm amazed by how many people have remarkable talents at 35, 45, 55, and they just haven't had someone looking at it from an outside perspective to help point that out. So, I mean, one thing for not for the people who are writing in, but for everyone else listening is one. I think the most valuable strength a person can have is being able to spot and encourage and develop talent in someone else.
1: That's really interesting because that's really that interweaves with the other message, really, which is how to find meaning uh, in your life. And one way to find meaning is to kind of encourage others.
0: Yeah, if I mean, any like honestly, when I have a friend who's really down and struggling, the last thing I would do is recommend that he go try and make himself happier. Um, I think the the first thing I'd tell him to start with would be to go do some kind things for other people and see if that gives you some ideas and gets you started, knowing that behind the scenes, doing those things that pick up other people is probably the fastest way to get him going and in a better place as well. So then I think the same thing applies to talents, where if you start noticing more in other people, one more that'll come back around in turn. And you might also pick up on some things that you've been good at the more direct answer, though, for someone who's personally struggling with that is to just reflect on the last few years or maybe over a decade and say, what are the areas where when you were doing something, even for a brief period of time, you kind of lost track of time. It seemed more effortless. It's kind of that state of flow that Cheeks Mihaly Csikszentmihalyi talks about, where you, you felt like you were in a zone there. And if you can identify even a few areas where you Really felt like you were in a good place, even if you weren't getting paid to do whatever that was, that might give you some clues to what your natural talents are. The other obvious one is to just ask a few of your closest friends or family members what they've seen because those external observations and your recollection can be as valuable as, uh, going through a formal assessment and so forth.
1: So, so this leads me to, to two questions actually. So, uh, you know, again, you, you, you talk a lot about encouraging and energizing others but but often when i think that i i don't want people to think uh when like my friends that i'm just trying to be kind of motivational to them i want to really help them so how can i so so maybe you're suggesting a good authentic way to help them is in this questioning and listening process like hey what are the what are things in the past 10 years where you felt um you've had this flow because then it doesn't seem like i'm trying to force my own opinions or happiness on them
0: yeah, I, I mean, I've, I've struggled with that myself because I'm really introverted in social groups and the last person who's going to be preachy or motivational about anything with friends or family in person. Um And so, I think the the thing that we all can do is to ask some good questions and then to just very carefully make sure we keep our mouths shut and listen and listen and listen and try and find some threads that might be helpful for other people. That's, I mean, that's one thing I've spend a lot more time doing and frankly enjoy more than some of the other things that I do is uh, asking good questions of uh, friends and colleagues and other authors I've been talking to about uh, what they're thinking about for the future. And then just try and listen for 30 minutes or an hour and then spend some time thinking about, are there some connections I can help them to make over time that might make a difference?
1: You know, and and the other question it brings to mind is uh, you mentioned Asking what in the past 10 years kind of put you into this state of flow. But I often find that people who are, you know, they kind of grew up, they, they did what you call the default. Like maybe their parents wanted them to be lawyers or doctors. So they became lawyers and doctors. And then later in life, they kind of get back to what truly gives them, um, some pleasure or some meaning. And often it's related to what they were doing, what they, what made them happy when they were the ages of, let's call it eight to 18. So so rather than the prior 10 years, I find those 10 years to be real cr- critical be- before the years of responsibility, you know, before the years where they had to, like, you know, work for a living. And did you find that for yourself? Like, was there any time from 8 to 18 where you would write stories or you would write letters or, or anything like that?
0: Yes. and And I think that's, you know, going way back to the very earliest research before. Um, one of the first books we worked on at Gallup back in the late 90s was a program called Strengths Quest that was for kids in college. And when we targeted everything and built the whole program for students in this fresh, in their freshman year, and we've since had millions of kids go through it as part of the kind of their freshman experience course. And if you were to ask me what, when is the best time to be asking some of those broad exploratory questions about what are your natural talents? How can you put more practice and time and investment into that? How can you be effective at building relationships based on your personality and everything else? How can you get involved in more groups that connect to your meaning and mission and so forth? I think those are the critical times to do it, whether it's leaving high school, the very outset of college, because you're right that after that, th- there are so many societal and achievement oriented economic expectations that get baked in there and make it difficult to come back until we're probably too comfortable and financially secure much
1: later on in life. You know, what do you think of the whole college experience now for kids? Like, like you know, people basically assume they, ha- they, they can only get a job with meaning or a job that makes use of their skills if they go to college and get into all this debt. Like, do you think that world is changing right now?
0: I do. I've seen some really good... Research just in the last year from uh, Gallup and others about how the where you go to school matters far less than anybody would have thought when it comes to your well-being 10 or 20 years later. So it, I, I think we've the better question that we need to help students look at early on in college before they're desperate for a job and have already graduated is, um, how can you map out a career that's pretty sustainable financially obviously but also to give equal weight to your eventual well-being when you're 30 and 40 and 50 not just the first year salary statistic you see in the US news magazine or whatever
1: so so i have a i have a bunch of like random uh things i wanted to bring up uh, that that just kind of blew my mind so you say uh smartphones are unlocked 110 times per day, and in the evening, nine times per hour. So let's say I'm checking my email on my phone 110 times per day, and let's say it's like three minutes per check, you know, because I check email, Facebook, Twitter, whatever. That's like uh, 330 minutes or five hours a day.
0: That's And that is about when you ask people in aggregate. That's about what we average. So I think that's honestly – one of the greatest challenges that we all face with um, just the proliferation of notifications in particular, not only on our, but that smartphone number of 115 doesn't count all the stuff coming in on your desktop and on your phone at home or any other devices that you have. So I mean, there are probably 200 things leaping for our attention in a given day. And obviously, I mean, there are some things that do need to reach us if it's an emergency, but what I've challenged myself to try and do is, To, I went back very deliberately and asked myself if I was having a very important conversation with a colleague about their future and their career, what absolutely has to break in in the middle of that conversation? Or if I'm reading a book to my daughter at night, what absolutely has to break into that because it's such an emergency? And one thing I, I can tell you is that most people have little breaking news alerts that pop up when Kim Kardashian announces she's pregnant with her second child. And that's that does not need to break into either one of those conversations. Uh nor do 98% of the things that uh default us to having notifications on on our smartphones. So if you can go back and turn all those things off by default and then toggle the things on like a two calls in a row from a spouse that really do have to get through because they're important, um it's a much better way to stay focused on the people that matter most throughout the day and you know, the other little stat I mentioned in the book there is that it blew my mind away. If I sit down at dinner with my family or if I do this in a meeting and I take my phone out just because they're getting too big for your pocket nowadays and I set it on the table, that sends a message to everyone else at the table that I'm not paying attention and the phone comes first. So even if the thing's off, it's become a visual cue for that person's not paying attention to me.
1: Yeah, no, I, I read that and actually I... I started making sure, you know, at dinners or meetings or uh wherever I was, that m- my phone would be completely hidden. So so no one would see it. Because I, I believe that to be true. Like when someone has their phone next to them, I kind of get a little annoyed when I'm in a meeting with them. So uh, I think that's very true. You know, you also say that people should have kind of creative outlets outside of the workplace in order to Basically, not only increase their job performance but increase their their well being. So, does this really apply to every everybody? Or like, how would you recommend somebody go about finding what other outlets they should explore?
0: You know, it it doesn't apply to everyone. There, there are uh, there's a good chunk of people. Maybe I don't know if it's. I'd guess in the thirty percent range in the U.S., for example, who get to do things that fulfill that need very clearly during their work and they get paid for it. And that's awesome. And that's where everybody should be in an ideal world. The The reason I added some of that to the book is because for most people in, in most of the countries where I've studied data on this topic, the experience of work is nowhere near the place where it needs to be in terms of meeting their needs for doing things that serve a broader mission or give them energy because they get to spend time outdoors with friends or family members and the like. So my most simple recommendation on that is just that people find some way to do something that builds on their talents and interests and the things they really like doing even if it's for a sliver of time five minutes 15 minutes 30 minutes every single day and so if you can infuse a little bit into your day you know the the thing that got a lot of the research off the ground the question that Gallup's asked of 25 million people on strengths it's not about using your strengths all the time the question they ask people is I have the opportunity to do what I do best every day and implicit in that is just that you need to spend a little bit of time in those areas each day. I mean, all of us are going to have to do tons of stuff in a given day that is not the best use of our time or talents and it's exhausting, but if we can find some little break there, it makes a difference.
1: So, so, so two things there. One is on those moments when we're not doing the things that we most enjoy in life, it seems like your suggestion, and this is kind of the strengths is one sort of theme, and meaning is another theme in in your books. But it seems like it, when I'm doing the things that I don't necessarily fully enjoy, I should still try to find those small moments of meaning. And you and you refer to frequency versus intensity. So even if it's a small moment, I should always practice this mindfulness of finding meaning in the things, even that I don't enjoy.
0: Yeah, and trying to see how it adds up to something that really does serve a purpose because um i mean if i'm filling out an expense report it's not the most enjoyable moment of a day for me but it's because i went and did something and spent some time with a group that really did make a difference and so it's it's a more distant leap but it's feeding into something for a purpose there and if there are things you're doing that you really don't think have any clear purpose or extension that makes a difference for anybody else then those are the things you it's good to challenge if you can in a, in a work setting or any other personal setting about should you really be doing that on a recurring basis, at least,
1: you know, um, one, one thing that you bring up, which is related to this is the concept of initiating versus responding. So in, in every action we do, we either initiated the action or responding to something else. And so that's, what's triggered our, our actions. And how do how do you in general become more of an initiator?
0: You know, it's, the, what's interesting is not only it's so easy, there's, with all the stuff we were talking about that's flying at us in a given day, it's extraordinarily easy to just spend your whole day doing nothing other than responding to external requests. That's kind of the new norm. Right. And so that's I think that's one of the biggest challenges from a product. And it's as an interesting aside, there's been some academic research that's also enjoyable. So if you just sit back and respond to what other people all day, it's kind of fun. Um, so the, the challenge is, when i go back and i've interviewed people about the things they've done that they really feel good about and proud of and they feel like they made a difference and it was it had it was meaningful work it's usually things that they initiate and i don't mean initiating a whole new book or a big new project it could be that but in most cases it's initiating a conversation with another person if you walk down the hallway at work and ask someone about a meaningful event for their kids that happened over the weekend or something i'd consider that initiating a dialogue that really made a difference for another person. And so we've at a minimum, we've got to step back a few times a day and initiate little things that we know kind of plant seeds for growth of whether it's
1: people or products or ideas or writing in the future. So let's talk about productivity for a second. So let's say I have these strengths, like there's something I'm particularly good at, let's say, I don't, I don't know, whatever it is. And let's say I wake up at 6 a.m. What hour after 6 a.m., is my brain most likely to be the strongest at my strengths? And I don't know if you've done any research on this. I've seen other academic research on this. Some of the work
0: I've seen on it, I mean, there there are kind of patterns of fluctuations of things like energy and cortisol that are more common across people with spikes in the morning and so forth. But there are also, I mean, there's, I've seen quite a bit of work on the owls and larks and so forth, where some of that's dependent on your personality and what your best routine is in terms of getting into that flow. I mean, obviously there are a lot of writers who say they are deliberate about not doing uh responding to anything or checking their email until they get some writing done early in the morning. For, for me, I try and discipline myself that until I get a little bit of cardiovascular activity or go for a run or something, I won't type back to any emails. And so I think one thing I've heard a lot of people do is set some kinds of little norms or expectations that at least encourage you to do some of the right things that you need early on in the day.
1: Right. Because I, at night, there's just the extreme example. If you stay up for 24 hours, your your brain's not going to be productive at all. So it stands to reason that earlier in the day, your brain's going to be more productive.
0: Yeah, and the other, I guess the other thing I learned from some of this research and are you fully charged on is that, you know, top performers across a variety of professions usually work in bursts. So they'll work in a burst of 20 minutes and then take two or three minutes and walk around, and do something different. In most cases, on average, they work about, I think it's 47 minutes in a burst and then take 12 or 15 minutes off and refresh their brain and get a little activity and move around. So I think we do need to think about our days in kind of more rhythmic cycles of productivity because if you just stare at a screen for three hours in a row, I mean, it's obviously all the electrical activity in your legs shut off and cholesterol goes up. Your metabolism goes down by 90% after 20 minutes. But most importantly, your brain looks very different on fMRI scans, for example. So, you know, it's interesting. I've spent a lot of time since this book launched speaking to groups and it still just boggles my mind that the default position for listening to someone talk or teach for an hour is to be sitting down. I can almost assure you that no matter how good a talk is, nobody's paying attention 20 minutes in if they haven't gotten up and moved around at all.
1: Yeah. And you talk about like every 45 minutes, someone should take a 15 minute kind of break and do something else or walk around or whatever. But I want to ask you, cause you, there's a lot of interesting stuff kind of in your section on eat, you know, eat, move, sleep. And in the book, you know, you kind of contrast having like high impact, exercising for 30 minutes versus kind of walking and moving throughout the day. Like, you know, you would rather kind of take 10 or 20,000 steps than have like that 30 minute gym exercise. Maybe address that a little bit.
0: Yeah. You know, I, over the last prior to, I mean, recent years there's been more conversation about sitting being such a problem and needing more activity throughout the day. But before that, most of the messaging from, um, government agencies, nonprofit groups, schools, everything was, you know, you got to get 30 minutes of cardiovascular activity five or six days a week. And when I look back at that, I honestly wonder if that did a little bit more harm than good in some cases, because 30 minutes of real high cardio activity, intense cardio activity, five, six days a week, that's an intimidating bar for 90% of us. I'm in that camp. Me too. Um, And so to... So that that's so intimidating that we just kind of throw in the towel and say, screw it, we're just going to sit around and not do anything. Um, and in contrast, what I've learned from recent research is that even if you are out running for an hour a day, seven days a week or whatever, that does not offset going into an office and being in a chair for nine or 10 hours a day, which is where I was before I started uh, tracking this stuff with a Fitbit five years ago or so. And I think that's a bigger challenge if you just look at kind of global health data, especially here in the U.S., I would argue that people should first start by minimizing their completely sedentary and still time in a chair and try and break that up throughout the day in a variety of ways before they even worry about the intense cardiovascular activity, which I'd say is a secondary priority from an activity standpoint.
1: You know, I have, I have an idea for you. You should write um, weakness finder. There you go. <laughs> because I think often the biggest challenge I don't know about many people, but I have is identifying my weaknesses. Like I kind of have a vague idea what I'm good at and strong at or what I like to be strong at, but it's hard for sometimes, you know, people smoke a lot of their own crack. So, uh, it's hard for people to kind of recognize what they're weak at. Like for instance, you know, nine out of 10 people will say they're above average at driving or nine out of 10 people say, will say they're, they're, uh, an above average judge of people, which is impossible. But, uh, you know, I think people in general don't you know overinflate their own skills. Absolutely, yeah. That's you know that I, we when we were working on a book
0: on leadership a few years ago, we asked people if they thought they were good leaders, and ninety seven percent said they were at or above average leaders. And any one of us who's worked for someone else knows that's not true, right? Um, so you, we do have that inflation. It's why the, the quick aside with when we were first designing StrengthsFinder many years ago, we were careful to. Ask some quirky questions that pulled people from one side to the other because we knew as kind of researchers and test makers that if you allow people to have something where it's clearly socially desirable, they'll just pick the desirable option almost every time. So you kind of have to challenge people to pull at different pairs in order to make things like that work. So I, I do agree that when even, and that's more about your kind of natural personality type talents, but I think When you talk about kind of a a weakness finder would be appealing to me in terms of finding things about weaknesses in my daily routine and some of the functional things i'm doing on an ongoing basis that hamper my energy it's it's interesting where um you know everybody talks about steve jobs quotes and quotes from the isaacson book and all that stuff but the thing that stuck out for me was you know he didn't obviously wasn't some super fit health conscious guy but um when walter isaacson asked him you know, why do you always make people go for walks around your neighborhood? And he's like, oh, I just think better when I walk. And something as simple as that is a much better motivator for people like me and a lot of others to say, you know, I need to move around a little bit just so my mind's not so bogged down at three o'clock in the afternoon.
1: Yeah. And I I guess for me, too, like I'm probably a little bit more sedentary than than you recommend in your book. Uh, I tend to be shy in group settings as well. Like there's various things. I'm weak at that I can either avoid, you know, so I can avoid being sedentary or I could get better at, like I can learn how to, um, maybe provide more meaning in a group and, and a lot. And, and these two things I just said are motivated not by identifying my strengths, but by identifying, uh, my weaknesses. So I I think there's some value there.
0: Yeah. And I think that the, it's important to note on the strengths, the the strengths conversation that that is really. We've tried to narrow down to just kind of traces of human talent and personality that are less malleable over time um, from a just sheer personality assessment standpoint. But I think figuring out weaknesses in terms of different things you can do around your routine and around your day and around specific functions and things that you can fix with a lot of practice, it is very important to pay attention to weaknesses in that regard. And I think one of the things that's bugged me over the years a little bit is when people say, well, the... Finder stuff tells you to just focus on your strengths and ignore your weaknesses. And I, I, mean, I think ignoring your weaknesses is, a, is about as dangerous as uh, ignoring your strengths.
1: Yeah. So, so I want to um, close this with a, a quote from the book. Uh, you say the best use of an hour is to invest it in something that will continue to grow. And I think uh, we've made very good use of this, of this hour. And hopefully it's something people will listen to and grow from. Like I, I can tell you, I've certainly grown from from reading your books, and I really appreciate that, that you wrote them.
0: Thank you so much. It's been a pleasure following your work and talking to you today.
1: And so so the book is, Are You Fully Charged? The Three Keys to Energizing Your Work and Life. We didn't actually even list the three keys. Uh, do you want to list the three keys, just so people know?
0: <laughs> yeah, the three keys are uh, meaningful work each day, having far more positive than negative
1: interactions, and... Ensuring you have enough energy each day to make a difference for other people. And, and I really like the non-extreme form of that. Like, again, it's this balance. Like, we're gonna have some interactions with people that are negative, but just have more positive than negative is actually, will make an incredible benefit on, on like, well, well-being and energizing your work. So, so again, I like that uh, approach very much. Thank you. Appreciate it. Alright, well, th- thank you very much, Tom. And, and, uh, good luck with this book and, and the next one. Thank you. Take care. I hope you have a good one. Bye, Tom. Bye. For more from James, check out the James Altucher Show on the Stansberry Radio Network at stansberryradio.com. And get yourself on the free insiders list today.